You know, you can learn a lot from an artist by just taking a look at their work. For instance, if you were to look at somebody like Picasso. Picasso is famous as being a guy who paints a lot of abstract things, but in particular, he paints women that are often distorted and strange. And when you look into it, you recognize that his experience with women in his life wasn't self-distorted and strange. And that kind of came out in the art that he created. But in a greater way, much greater way, we can understand our Heavenly Father by taking a look at the world that he has created, and particularly the relationships that God has created throughout Scripture with various people. The Old Testament is a, is a collection of stories of God interacting with various people in various times for various reasons, but for one great purpose. And in the tapestry of those stories, we begin to understand what it means to be in a relationship with Creator God, our Heavenly Father. We've taken a look at some of the stories from the very beginning, the moment in time where Adam and Eve are placed in a perfect garden, in a perfect world, and they destroyed that with sin. We've watched as the consequences of sin are visited on their children and on their children's children to the point that God comes to a man by the name of Noah, and he says to Noah, Noah, I'm about to wash this world clean and start afresh, and I want you to be the catalyst for that change. We've watched as God dealt both graciously and yet firmly with a man named Job, who was, by his own admission, a wonderful, holy, great man. And yet, God allowed Satan to destroy much of his happiness, take away all of his possessions, and destroy his family for reasons that Job would never know. And yet, God would tell Job, someday you will understand. Last week, we took a look at the relationship that God cultivated with a man by the name of Abraham, or Abram. Later, he would change his name to Abraham. God comes to this man, and he says, I want you to leave everything you've ever known, and I want you to go to a faraway country. And Abram was willing to do that. And because he was willing to do that, the book of Hebrews reminds us that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. This morning, we're going to skip ahead a few more years in this epic story of the Old Testament To a moment in time, a man is in the wilderness, and he thinks he's all alone. He's used to it now because he's been all alone for a long, long time, and that's the way he likes it. There was a time that in his life where he was in the center of things. He was in the mix. People knew his name. He commanded respect as he walked in the markets and in the cities, but now no one knows nor cares where he is or who he is. The only people that have a relationship with him hardly are just his immediate family and a herd of sheep that he chases around a scarce wilderness. But it was on one particular day, shepherding his flock in the mountain region region of a mountain called Horeb, that he notices something he's never seen before. And it's the beginning of one of the most extraordinary relationships that we find in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, why don't you grab those or click over with me. And let's go to the book of Exodus, and we're going to jump ahead to chapter 3 in the story of God's deliverance of his people, where we meet a guy by the name of Moses out in the middle of the wilderness. It says, now Moses was keeping his flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
You can only imagine the kind of peace and solitude that, that Moses was experiencing here. He was alone. And I think that he was comfortable with that. It had been 40 years since he had been that young up-and-comer in Egypt. And he was quite content just to be alone with the flocks and with his thoughts. But then the Lord, angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why is this bush not burned? I don't know that it was unusual for him to see something on fire. I think that would probably be unusual. But he looks and there's a bush, it's burning. And like any of us, he, he glances the radiance of the flames. He looks at it, he stares at it for a while. And yet he notices the bush isn't burning up. It's just remaining consistent. And I don't know if he said it aloud or he said it to himself. He's a shepherd and he's alone in the wilderness. So he likely said this aloud. But he said, hey, I'm gonna go check that out. And so he does. And this is the opening chapter of one of the neatest stories, in my opinion, in the Old Testament. The opening, opening moments of a relationship between the creator God and a broken old man by the name of Moses. And I'm just going to tip my hat a little bit this morning because I think most of you know this story. Moses will become arguably the greatest leader in scripture outside of Jesus. He'll be a man that, that does absolutely extraordinary things because God has called him to. But at this moment, none of that seems even vaguely possible. We're going to take a look at three elements in this story this morning in the time that we have together that tell us a lot about how God wants to interact with us. Because this whole opening, this opening pageant is designed to not only teach Moses something, but to teach us something. God is deliberately doing something to explain to Moses what he would have him do and to teach us what he would have us to do as well. Without question, the first thing that you notice in this text is the holy fire. It's the thing that caught Moses' attention. Now, at this point, he doesn't know that it's holy fire. He doesn't really know what what he's even coming up against. He just simply notices that there's a bush burning, but it doesn't burn up. And this fire is kind of representative of three parts of who God is. First of all, the fire is representative of God's holiness. Now, in a moment's time, God is going to speak to him out of this fire, right? He's going to say, take off your sandals. The place you are standing is holy ground. And certainly this fire was representative, not just of, of God's holiness in this context, but fire is representative of God, God's holiness throughout scripture. The Bible tells us that God is a consuming fire, right? That his holiness is absolute and it's demanding. And, and here is a, is a visceral reminder to Moses and to us of God's holy nature. God's holiness means that he's set apart from everything that he has made. Here he is in the presence of creation, but he is far different than all the rest of creation that he's surrounded by. And holiness is not just simply God's righteousness, although that is certainly part of it. I I think we recognize that. The New Testament talks about how our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God's holiness. And certainly there is a separation between that. My intentions, however pure I think they are, oftentimes are not as pure as I would like for them to be. But in reality, 
It's also about the fact that God is separated from us in nature as well. God is a spiritual being. And his conversation with Moses here at this burning bush will be different than the conversation that God may have in a different context. It's a distinction between a creator and the creation, the infinite and the very finite. And that is pointed out very plainly to Moses that day. But the second thing that that fire represents to Moses is it represents God's glory. Not only is God holy and not only is God set apart, not only is God righteous and far different than we are, but God also has this accompanying glory that is just indicative of his person. When John is invited through the doorway and he begins to experience the glory of heaven beyond it, and when he describes the throne of God, he, he describes it in terms of flames and fire and lightning. There's this glory that just surrounds God and it just sets people back. When Isaiah is, is come, kind of comes into the presence of God in the temple, it, there's smoke and there's fire later in the, in the, uh, in the journey of the, of the children of Israel. They will be led by day with a pillar of fire, or by night, a pillar of fire, and by day, a pillar of smoke. God's presence always is full of glory. In fact, it will be a while later, but not all that long later, that in Exodus, the sixth chapter, Moses will return to this similar place But this time he will not be alone with a few sheep scattering around the mountainside trying to graze. He will be accompanied by possibly a million or two million Israelites that are now freed from bondage in the land of Egypt. And they will meet their God here in the wilderness, just as Moses had met him some time before. In Exodus 24th chapter, in verse number seven, the Bible describes that encounter in this way. It says, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. I don't know what that looks like, but I think maybe some of us can kind of at least grasp at that. We've probably watched a big bonfire or an explosion at some point. The people look up and they see God's presence descend on the top of the mountain. It just looks like a consuming fire, just a roaring blaze. There's nothing more powerful or something that will catch our eye quicker than an explosion and fire. And certainly those elements are present out in the wilderness. But there's something that we often miss, but Moses didn't, about this bush in the wilderness. Certainly the fire is indicative of the characteristics of God, that he's holy, that he's other than, that his righteousness is greater than ours, and that he dwells in glory and an unapproachable light. But Moses noted that while God's glory was surrounding this bush, the bush was not consumed. God was making a very specific point to Moses and to us that he wants to dwell with us, but he doesn't want to destroy us. Be very easy for an all-powerful, all-consuming fire like God to simply destroy everything in his touch. That would be natural. That would be his nature. But God has insulated us by his grace. And even in this time, long before Jesus would come and share the details of grace, God is representing that in this fire in a bush. It says he looked and beheld the bush that was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And because of that, Moses was drawn to go and see this great sight. Why is it not burned up? I don't know if 
if you've noticed this, but, but even at this time, a long time ago, God's grace was something that was attracting people to take a look. If Moses had just looked over at that bush and the bush was on fire and then he watched as the bush was consumed and the, the fire twick, twick, trickled away, Moses would have thought it was just a normal thing. But he noticed something that was out of the usual. And when he came closer, he just recognized how absolutely extraordinary it really was. God wanted to have a relationship with Moses but not the kind of relationship that would make God be less of a God than he is. That was not going to be the case. And certainly it wasn't going to be the kind of relationship where the nature of God would destroy Moses. No, God wanted to bring Moses into this relationship. And God tells Moses, this is, I have seen the plight of my people. This is the first time that God has ever called the Israelite people my people. They're under the oppressive bondage in Egypt. If you don't know the story, let me quickly tell you that what happens is that Joseph, another fantastic story of the Old Testament, right, goes, is led by God into Egypt to be there right at the right time that there would be a massive famine that would break out over the land. And you might remember that story was a troubled story. Joseph went from being the favored brother to being a slave in a house. He rose up in a house being this favored slave to becoming an imprisoned slave. He rose up in the prison to be the head of the prison And it just seemed like he had reached the glass or stone ceiling, right? There was no way he was getting out of there. He met two guys, a butler and a cupbearer. He told them both the answer to their dream. He said, I want you to remember me when you get back into the service of the Pharaoh. But the cupbearer completely forgot him until the Pharaoh had a dream about cows that were eaten and wheat that was eaten and yet it was skinny. And he said, you know, back in my prison days, there was this guy who told me exactly what it was that my dream met. And they sent for Joseph. Joseph came, explained there was gonna be a great famine. And Joseph went from the prison to the palace in probably less than four hours. And not just in the palace, but he was the, he was the prime minister. He was the second in command of the land of Egypt. He started this great feeding program. He stored up for seven years so they could send out for the following seven years where nothing would grow. And in those seven years, Joseph's own brothers, along with his father, would come and they would make their home in Egypt. They would stay there for about 400 years until this moment, when they've now no longer become welcomed guests, but they are oppressed prisoners. And, and God sees the plight of his people and he reaches out and he starts his rescue plan. But you might be thinking what I'm thinking. Why is God starting his rescue plan out in the middle of the wilderness in a faraway place with a guy that has been out of circulation for 40 years? Well, God has a purpose and a plan for Moses' life, and he wants Moses to realize that. And he asks Moses to do something very specific and strange. He says, Moses, I want you to take off your shoes, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now, you can study through Scripture, and you're going to find that this happens one other place in the Scripture. And it happens to... Moses' successor, a guy by the name of Joshua. Joshua is out kind of surveying before the battle of Jericho. And he comes across this fearsome looking soldier who says that he is the commander of the Lord's armies. And uh, again, in that context, the commander of the Lord's army says, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. 
Now, when the chief priests and others would carry sacrifices into the temple, they didn't walk into the temple with bare feet. They had footwear. Jesus wore footwear. So what was the significance of this moment? Why why did God call Moses to take off his shoes? Why did God want him to stand there barefoot, toes in the dirt of Mount Horeb? Well, I don't think I can answer affirmatively for you this morning because I'm not God and God doesn't tell us, but I think the reason that God is calling Moses to do this is fairly obvious. He wants Moses to be a part of this. God is about to call him into a mission. And he wants Moses to recognize this is not just something that you're a part of or in. I want it to consume you. I want you to connect with this moment forever. Joshua receives a similar call when the Lord of the, the captain of the Lord's hosts talks to him. God gives him two commandments to not come any nearer, to protect him from God's holiness, from the glory and the power of God. And secondly, to remove his shoes because he was inviting Moses to become part of something. Taking off our shoes sometimes is a difficult thing to do. I don't know how many of you guys grew up in a family that you had to take off your shoes when you went in a house. How many of you grew up in a home like that? Any of you guys? Yeah, yeah. It's a little, it's a little odd of a feeling, right? Now, in my mom and dad's house, it's because my mom, for some unknown reason, got like white carpet almost. It wasn't white, but it was one shade off of white. Why you do that when you have people coming? I don't know. Anyway, mom had almost white carpet and there was no way I was going to walk into my mother's house with muddy shoes. That was certainly a moment of respect. But there's also something kind of interesting about when we take off our shoes, right? There's something familiar about that. There's something comfortable about that, but there's something that's kind of committing about that. People will often say when I was a kid, hey, take off your shoes, come in the living room, sit down. And if you weren't going to stay there, you'd say, no, man, I I can only stay for a second. You would keep your shoes on because you knew you were about to step back out and go on your way. But God is inviting Moses to come and to step in and to stay. God wanted Moses to be unseparated from the mission that he would propose. And maybe a great question for us this morning is this, what stands between us and the full obedience that God has called us to have toward him? I think one of the great parts of the story is, is that Moses does so. Now, I think probably most of us would do so, and it would be wise, but Moses does it. He, he bends down, he unstraps his sandals, and he stands there, feet in the dirt, before a bush on fire from God. But are there things in our life that are separating us from where God and what God is calling us to do with our lives? We all have those excuses. God, I I would, but this, I would like to, but I can't. Someday I will, if only I could. And I think God is telling all of us this morning, you can. You just have to be willing to do so. Moses doesn't argue with God. When God calls him to do something somewhat unexplainable, Moses does it because God called him to do so. There's so many things in the Bible that we don't necessarily know why God says for us to do them or how we're to, why we're to act in a particular way. And that's okay. Moses teaches us a great example of just being willing to be obedient. 
to the call and the command of God. But God does tell him this. He said, the place that you're standing is holy ground. Now, I don't know that the dirt, the physical Mount Horeb section right there was particularly more holy than everything else around it. What made it holy was that God was there, that the presence of God was in that place and that God would come there to commission Moses to go on a mission. Moses would be so blown away by this. In fact, as he wrote a song of praise in Exodus 15, he writes these words in verse number 11. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. This moment left a lasting memory on the heart, on the life of Moses. When God calls us to follow him, we are standing on holy ground in many ways. There's no reason really, right, that God would have to go to Moses and call this guy that had not necessarily been faithful as a young man out of the wilderness and call him to go before the Pharaoh. God could have done all of these things on his own. But just like we see God partnering with, with Noah and again with Abram, now God partners with Moses to bring about his will to a group of people who are lost and imprisoned in darkness in Egypt. And the reality is, is that God is doing the same thing for you and I today. God has called us to stop wandering about in the wilderness, stop chasing sheep, (laughs) and, and start recognizing that we have a mission to go into the dark, lost world, to find those who are imprisoned in this, in this slave, in sins, to, to sin and darkness, and to bring those people out into the glorious light of day. That's what God is calling each of us to do with our lives. That is our holy call. Some Bible scholars like to think, and maybe it's true, that when Jesus calls his apostles together, outside of a, on a mountain outside of Jerusalem, that it is this mountain that Jesus gathered his closest friends. And when he delivers them the great commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. He may have been standing exactly where God commissions Moses generations before to go back to Egypt and to rescue his people from the hand of slavery. But even if he is not, and even if it's just a a random coincidence, it's a small land, maybe a, a, a same hill, different spot, it doesn't really matter. The call is the same and the challenge is as enormous. Moses looks at this and says, I don't know if I'm up to it. In verse number 10 and 11, God says to Moses, he kind of explains the situation. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the, the uh, Egyptians oppress them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? And I think so often that's exactly how you and I think about the Great Commission. Who am I to go into this lost, dark world and represent Jesus Christ? 
Who am I to, to be able to, to, to stand in places and, and, and to take up a defense of the gospel? Who, who am I? I'm just a guy from Crowley. I'm just a shepherd from Midian. I don't know anything. I'm not equipped. I'm not ready. I don't have the ability to accomplish what it is that you are calling me to do, God. But as we close this morning, we recognize what is obvious in this text, that Moses is receiving a holy commission. God says, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to stand before Pharaoh and I want you to bring my people out of Egypt. And Moses responds immediately back to that and he says, I'm not the guy. I am not your guy. I don't belong on that list. I don't have the abilities. In fact, I can't even talk. And I love how God deals with this. He's like, you've got a brother. His name's Aaron. He never shuts up. Take him. Right? And then, and then Moses and Aaron go into Egypt. I don't know if you've ever read the story of Exodus, but you read through the story of Exodus. I think Aaron speaks like one time. And the rest of the time, Moses is the one speaking. Moses is the one that says to Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. Moses is the one that the Pharaoh calls for and says, hey, make it stop. God knew exactly who he was calling and why he was calling him. My question for all of us in this room today is, why do we think that we're not able? Well, I know why Moses thought he wasn't able. Because it's a part of the story that we skipped in the opening chapter of the book of Exodus. It's a great story, right? Moses, little baby boy born in an oppressive time. His mama has, has a great deal of sense uh, for, the, for the holiness of life and the reverence for life. And so she refuses to throw her son into the Nile River, even though the Pharaoh has commanded it. And so she builds him a little barge and she coats it good with pitch so it won't sink. She puts a blanket inside. She slips her little baby into it and she floats him down the river. And God puts his hand a blessing on that little floating uh, cradle and he floats it right up to the feet of the daughter of the Pharaoh who looks and says, oh, it's cute. Can I take it home? And Miriam is there hiding, watching it. And she says, hey, I've got a great deal for you. Would you like me to get one of the Hebrew women to nurse that baby for you? Because you don't want to be troubled with diapers and feeding and up all night. And the Pharaoh's daughter's like, that's a great idea. Hook me up. And so Miriam runs home and gets Moses' own mom and his own mom cares for him until he's grown enough that he can go live in the house of Pharaoh. But then at 40 years of age, Moses steps out and he sees one day that a Egyptian is oppressing, is beating a Hebrew. And even though it's been a long time that he's lived in the house of the, of the uh, Pharaoh, he knows who he is. And he goes up and he, he takes the life of the Egyptian. He kills him. And he buries him in the sand. He thinks, I have a solution to this problem. I know how to deal with this inequity. I can fix this. And empowered by his boldness and his resoluteness and his cohesive uh, relationship with his people, he goes out the next day and he sees two Hebrews that are fighting with one another. And he goes up to him and says, hey guys, don't fight your brothers. And they're like, what are you going to do? Kill us like you did the Egyptian? Before long, Moses finds himself going from hero to zero. And it's from that moment that he runs into the wilderness and he hides for 40 years. But you can't hide from God. And God isn't done with him yet. God didn't put him in the house of the Pharaoh for no reason. God had a purpose and an objective for the life of Moses. 
And this morning, I know we're all different people in this room this morning, but I want you to know that God has a purpose in a life, a purpose and a reason for your life as well. There are lost people that are around each and every one of us that none of the others of us have effect over. They might be your family members. They might be coworkers. They might be people who play on your sports teams or they might be your, your, your friends, your, your kids' friends. I don't know who they are. They're different for all of us, but there is a mission that is similar for every one of us. And that is that we need to constantly be looking for the ways to accomplish the mission God has laid before us. You see, when it's all about me, we just look and say, I can't do this. This summer, this year, I've traveled around a lot in the church in America. And something I'm hearing a lot from Christians and churches is we, we can't do this. We can't get our numbers back to where they were pre-COVID. We can't influence a culture like we, we need to. We can't make the changes that need to be made. We are in the minority. All those things are right. Moses couldn't do it either. No matter his position, no matter his, his ability, no matter that he may have been in line to be Pharaoh, <laughs> he was unable to make the changes that needed to be made. But God was not calling Moses to do it alone. And God is not calling you and I to go into this lost world and do it alone. He is calling us into a partnership. He says, Moses, take off your shoes. I want you just to stand in this moment barefooted before me. I am calling you to go back. I am calling you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And when we stand with the I am, because it's interesting, that's one of Moses' last objections. He's like, okay, so I'm going to go back. I'm going to tell these people that some guy, some being, something in a bush that's burning in the wilderness that didn't burn up told me to come back here and tell you guys that we're about to leave. And God says, just tell them that the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am, has sent you. You know what I love about the Bible, guys? This is just such cool stuff. I, I, we're out of time, so I've got to close. But what I love about the Bible is, is that when Jesus comes into the world and he's preaching and teaching, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And every time Jesus says what we say in English, the words, I am, everyone in that crowd knew exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. Because way in their past history, in a vintage story, in the dusty, dusty recesses of their own history, I am had spoken to their greatest leader. And I am will walk with Moses into the court of Pharaoh. And when I am is with you, your rod that's just a stick can become a serpent and swallow up other serpents, uh, other sticks. When I am is with you, you speak to the waters and tap your very staff into the water and a whole river becomes nothing but blood. When I am walks with you, dust become lice, disease kill livestock, boils come from ashes, locusts descend in plagues. When I am is with you, darkness comes in the middle of the day and death can strike those who are resistant. When I am is with you, you can part the waters of the Red Sea and your people can walk across in safety and freedom 
but those who choose to follow and try to take you back will be swallowed up. When I am is with you, you can heal the waters that are undrinkable. You can provide bread from heaven in a time and in a place where there is nothing to eat and water from a rock when there is nothing to drink. When I am is with you, you can quench fire and death. When I am is with you, you can heal a nation that is broken. When Moses heads back into Egypt and he brings the people out, the chapters that follow record at least 42 miracles just attributed to Moses. That's not another 30 or so miracles that were performed in the, in, in the, in the general vicinity of Moses being a part of the story. As we close this morning, there's a lady by the name of Elizabeth Barnett Browning, and she's a poet. Some of you have probably heard a poem that she wrote. She said, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush a fire from God. And only he who seeks to take off his shoes, the rest just sit around it and pluck blackberries and dab their natural faces unaware. I guess this morning what I'm challenging all of us to do is to be willing to kind of take off our shoes. The willingness to stand in the presence of the call of God and say to God, here am I, use me. I, I really have nothing to bring, Lord. My, my, my options are very, very limited. We might feel a lot like Moses. God, I'm not sure that you're actually picking the right person for this commission. But God knew that he was picking the right person. And if we're trying to figure our life out all on our own, you'll find yourself a lot like Moses did when he was trying to sort out life on his own. He started off with the greatest of ambitions. He started off, he was gonna get the problem solved. He would take matters into his own hands. He would create a system, a formula. He would implement it and he would be victorious. And where he find himself? An outcast, broken, empty, wandering in the wilderness. But when Moses was willing to humble himself and say to God, here I am, barefoot, unable to really resist. When he was willing to say, God, in spite of my great reservations, personally, I will trust that you know what you're doing. When he recognized that he was standing on holy ground, he would walk through far bigger challenges than he ever imagined possible. You know, all that Moses wanted was just equality. He just wanted his people to be treated with respect in the land of Egypt. God had a far bigger plan than just equality with Egyptians. God wanted freedom and possession of the land that he had promised to them. And the other thing is that you will arrive right where you're called to be at just the right time to do the thing that you were called by God to do. These great stories of the Old Testament are not just stories. They're inspiration. They're a reminder that our Heavenly Father, despite His awesome presence, His powerful glory, His unapproachable holiness, has made a way for us to stand in His purpose and to accomplish His missions together with Him for His glory. Church family, that is an amazing thing to think that God has included us in his plan 
But that's exactly what he's done. And he's been doing that since the very beginning. This morning, maybe there's some of us that have come to church and we know that there's a need in our life. Maybe it's that we've never, we've never submitted to having our sins washed away in baptism. Maybe it is that we've, we've held back a part of our life and we've said, God, someday, somehow, I, maybe I'll think about it. Or Lord, I would, but. And maybe we recognize today is the day to lay down those would buts and say, God, I am willing when you call me to accomplish your purpose. Let's stand together, church family. If you have a need this morning, you know you can come now or you can catch Mr. Bruce or Mr. Jody or myself before you leave today. Let's talk about that. Let's not leave here not accomplishing what it is that God has called us here to accomplish.